Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. You'll find this on page 858, I believe, in the church Bibles in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit of the story of the Old Testament. God's people were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, and then God miraculously delivered them. He brought them salvation from their misery, and he actually literally parted the sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. But then when the Egyptian army tried to get through, God made the waters of the sea drown them. Then God led his people through the desert wilderness and provided for all their needs. And finally, they reached the border of the promised land, the place where God intended for his people to flourish under his rule. And that's when their leader, Moses, went up onto a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he met with God, and God gave him a covenant to bring down from that mountain and to deliver, that, uh, to, deliver to the people. And in that covenant, God promised blessings for his people as they walked in faithfulness to him, and he also said there would be cursings if they turned from him. Now, here we are in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, and if you look at the stories Matthew has told so far, you'll, you'll see that it's very similar to the story I just told you from the Old Testament. In chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 15, Matthew shows us Jesus as a young boy coming out of Egypt. Then in chapter 3, we see Jesus going through water in his baptism. Then in chapter 4, Jesus spends 40 days and nights in the desert wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. Only Jesus does not fail the way the Israelites did. He lives upon every word of God and resists the urge of the evil one, and he emerges victorious. And then Jesus goes into the land of promise in chapter 4 and begins his public ministry. And that brings us here to chapter 5. And where do we find Jesus? He's up on a mountain, just like Moses, with his disciples gathered around him, waiting to hear the words that come from his mouth. And as Jesus opens his mouth and teaches them, he's proclaiming to them a new covenant, a better covenant than what Moses gave the people in the Old Testament. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the first great teaching of the new covenant. And Jesus begins his teaching this morning by announcing wonderful news. It's a word that's often translated blessed or blessed. It describes the way God is transforming the lives of those who turn to Jesus and trust in him. In these blessings, Jesus is not saying, try really hard to live like this, and then if you do, you will experience God's blessing. No. Jesus is saying, this is how I will turn your life upside down and inside out when you hand the keys over to me. When I'm the Lord and ruler of your life, this is the kind of life you're going to experience. He's describing what the good life looks like. And in doing so, Chris Castaldo writes, Jesus pours gasoline on our contemporary ideals and then he lights a match. So let's invite Jesus to turn our lives upside down 
as we listen to his voice afresh this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Thanks be to God for his word. Our focus this morning is going to be on verse 6. Let's put that up on the screen and let's say it together in unison. Together, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I have three points for us to consider this morning, and the first is this. Happy are the hungry. Happy are the hungry. Now, do you typically think of those two words going together, hungry and happy? Probably not. We know what it's like to feel hungry and angry, so much so that we even invented a word for it, hangry. And my spell check didn't even correct me when I typed that in. <laughs> I put it into Google and found out that, yes, indeed, hangry is a valid Scrabble word now. Hungry and angry can go hand in hand, but hunger and happiness normally don't fit. Few of us have experienced real hunger. But in the world of Jesus' day, where there was no refrigeration, where they lived in a subsistence society, where there were very few social welfare programs, there were many who experienced great hunger. It was common. When we get outside the bubble of our comfortable lives, even in our world today, we would discover that there are still in our world as many as 783 million people who go to bed hungry at night. It's a painful experience not to have proper nourishment. Even more excruciating, not to be able to feed your own children when they're crying out to have their needs met. When someone is truly hungry, they're desperate for any kind of nourishment. They don't have time to plant a garden and wait for the produce to grow so that they can eat it. They don't have the luxury of going to a restaurant and choosing from a menu a whole lot of options and deciding what they want to eat. All they care about is finding their next meal and they need it urgently. It's a terrible sign when a sick person loses their appetite. Maybe you've seen it with a loved one after they suffered an injury or going through a serious illness. And if it goes on too long, the, the body will no longer be able to absorb or make use of food. Starvation is setting in and death becomes inevitable. 
But what a wonderful sign it is when someone who's very sick suddenly wakes up and says, I'm hungry. The return of an appetite signals that health is on its way. Jesus is saying here, spiritually speaking, it's a wonderful sign when you've woken up to the fact that you are starving for righteousness and you say, I'm hungry to be filled. When you find your heart panting for God like a deer pants for water, when you say to him in the words of the psalmist, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That is a sign of health, spiritually speaking. You should rejoice when you see evidence of this kind of hunger and thirst in your life. Because we're at a turning point in these Beatitudes And you're at a turning point in your life when you start to experience the hunger and thirst Jesus is talking about. Notice the order of the Beatitudes. It all starts with coming to an end of yourself. Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize before God that you don't have what it takes. You have nothing to congratulate yourself, nothing to commend yourself before God. You are desperate for his grace or you're doomed. You're blessed when you come to see the truth of your spiritual poverty because the kingdom of heaven is yours. And when you realize how spiritually empty you are, you start to mourn over your sin in verse 4. And you mourn over the sin of this world and over the brokenness sin has brought in its wake. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, because they see that their sins have been costly not only to themselves but to others and especially to the Savior who died for their sins on Calvary. And when you learn to mourn over your sinfulness and the sinfulness of this world, Jesus says you're in a place to receive true comfort. Then you're also in a place to let insults and offenses from others roll off your back and you don't get bent out of shape over how other people treat treat you. You don't respond in a haughty way. You're actually amazed that anyone treats you as well as they do. Because you are learning to become meek. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, in verse 5. So the first three Beatitudes are about the blessedness of being emptied of self. But the goal of the Christian life is not just to be emptied. The goal of the Christian life is to be filled with all the fullness of God as Jesus and his spirit spirit permeate our lives from the inside out. So this fourth beatitude is the hinge point. It's the beatitude that moves us from the emptiness of ourselves to the fullness of the spirit of Jesus. The fourth beatitude is showing us how we move from this emptiness to this fullness. We move there by hungering and thirsting for what our souls most desperately need, which, according to Jesus, is righteousness. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those 
who are righteous. Aren't you glad he says, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Which makes it pretty clear that we don't have this righteousness in ourselves. Jesus isn't telling us here that we need to reach a certain standard of righteousness in order to receive God's blessing. He's telling us that we need to realize how far short we fall from God's righteousness and we need to hunger and thirst to be filled by what we cannot achieve on our own efforts. And when we have that hunger and thirst, we are blessed. It's an evidence of spiritual life and flourishing. And the absence of that hunger and thirst is a sign of decay and deadness. So if you're hungry, be happy, because this is a sign of spiritual health. But we need to go deeper in understanding the type of hunger Jesus is talking about here, because a lot of people hunger and thirst to be blessed. But Jesus did not say that if we hunger and thirst to be blessed, we are righteous. He said, if we hunger and thirst to be righteous, we are blessed. And that's a big difference. That brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, don't spoil your appetite. Imagine you're preparing a mouth-watering feast for family and friends You've sent out the invitations well in advance. You've told them this is going to be a very, very special meal. Come with an appetite. The beef tenderloin has been marinating for 24 hours, and it's been simmering in your oven since 4 a.m. to ensure that it will have that melt-in-your-mouth kind of taste and tenderness. It's going to be out of this world. Vegetables with brown sugar and ginger glaze have been cooking in the oven. Mashed potatoes with beef tenderloin gravy are being prepared at just the right temperature. Homemade pies and cakes for dessert. It's the most magnificent meal you've made all year. The doorbell rings. You can't wait to receive your guests. And the first one comes with an open bag of Cheetos. He says, I was so hungry, I just had to eat something. The next guest pulls in with his children. All of them have Happy Meals from McDonald's. And the dad comes to the door. He's got French fries sticking out of his mouth. Another one arrives with a box from Dunkin' Donuts opened. And there's powdered sugar all over his cheeks. Your last guest shows up with a pack of hot dogs and asks, can I use your grill for a minute? When you finally gather around the table and pass the plates... Each of them only takes a little bit, and they apologize for not having much of an appetite. That's why whenever I know I'm going to be eating a big meal for dinner, I try only to eat a little earlier in the day, and I often go on a run just to work up an even greater hunger, because there are some meals that are so rich and so satisfying that to come with anything less than a ravenous appetite would be an insult to the one who lovingly prepared the meal. Not to mention, it won't satisfy you if you fill up on junk food. It will only leave you craving for more. Now, my sense is that hunger and thirst for righteousness is not on the palate of the average American 
today. It's an acquired taste. It doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, most people think it would be a lot more fun to live a life without the pursuit of righteousness. Righteousness, okay, I'll take it, but only in small doses. You certainly wouldn't want to get fanatical about it. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in the next chapter, Matthew 6, More than being concerned about the food you'll eat or the clothes you'll wear, Jesus says the supreme pursuit of your life should be for righteousness. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Blessed are those who have cultivated a ravenous hunger and thirst for the pursuit of righteousness with such an intense, ardent longing that it becomes the consuming passion of their lives, Jesus is saying. Is righteousness what you're hungry for today? What does it even mean? Well, it means at its very base level to be in a right relationship with God, where there's nothing between you and your creator, where you know that you can stand before him faultless and with great joy. But it also means that you're hungering and thirsting for every part of your life to be conformed and obedient to his will. Here's a description of righteousness that makes a heart that's being transformed by God's grace thrill with longing. R.T. France says, Righteousness is the ultimate satisfaction of relationship with God unclouded by disobedience. I, I just found that a compelling description. Righteousness, righteousness, do we have that on the screen? Righteousness is the ultimate satisfaction of relationship with God unclouded by disobedience. I think I forgot to put that one in the slides. One more time. Righteousness is the ultimate satisfaction of relationship with God unclouded by disobedience. Doesn't that sound appealing, attractive, desirable to you? And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop with your own personal life. A hunger and thirst for righteousness goes on to long for the righteousness of God to so penetrate our lives that it will transform the society around us. I mean, this was the vision of the prophets of the Old Testament. Like Amos said, that justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We see it in Isaiah over and over and over again, that to be righteous is to give food to the hungry and to feed those who are in need and to bring water to the thirsty and to meet the needs of the oppressed. And it's certainly there in Matthew's gospel as well. When you look at the, the Matthew's depiction of the final judgment and the king says to those who are on his right, come you righteous into the kingdom prepared for you. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was poor and you clothed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they say, Lord, when did we do these things to you? And he said, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So righteousness is never just about personal piety. 
It always includes a vision for social righteousness and justice and the transformation of our neighbors and our communities. It's about the rule of heaven transforming life on earth. In fact, we get a clearer picture of what righteousness is when we read the next three Beatitudes. Let me tell you why I think Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7 give us a portrait of the kind of righteousness Jesus is encouraging us to hunger and thirst after. I want you to notice that the Beatitudes come in two sets of four. And both of them, both of these sets, end with righteousness. Verse 6 is the end of the first set, and it speaks of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And verse 10 comes at the end of the second set of Beatitudes, and it talks about being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So track the logic, track the order here. In verse 6, we're hungering and thirsting for a righteousness we don't have in ourselves. And then in verse 10, we're being persecuted for a righteousness that has been created and cultivated within us. How does this happen? How does verse 6 become verse 10? What, what has happened? Well, righteousness has been worked in us. And what does that righteousness consist of? What does it look like? Well, in verse 7, it's the righteousness that looks like being merciful to others. In verse 8, it's the righteousness that looks like purity of heart. In verse 9, it's the righteousness that makes us peacemakers in the midst of a world of conflict. Is this what you're hungering and thirsting for more than anything? To have your will so conform to God's will that obedience to him is your supreme desire. And to be transformed so that all your relationships in this world are characterized by mercy and compassion, purity of heart, peacemaking in a world of strife. That's a righteous life. And I hope you can see that it's a beautiful life a compelling life, a radiant life, a desirable life, a life that brings transformation to all of your relationships. Can you think of anyone whose life looked like this? Whose life was radiant with all these qualities? Can you think of anyone whose relationship with God was completely unclouded by disobedience? Can you think of anyone who's so delighted in the will of God that he could say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me? Can you think of anyone whose every thought and word and deed was dripping with mercy, crystal pure, always bringing peace in a world of strife? Well, there is one. And the Bible calls him Jesus Christ the righteous one. Or as Jeremiah puts it, the Lord our righteousness. And this hunger and thirst for righteousness 
will keep you coming back again and again to him. As you learn more about who Jesus is and what it means to do his will, you will find that your palate is being cleansed from the junk food of unrighteousness and the toxic poison of self-righteousness. And your appetite gets stoked as you come to Jesus to know him and to follow him and to become more and more like him. Which brings us to our last point this morning. Keep coming to Jesus empty to be filled. Empty to be filled. The reason those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed is because of the promise that they will be filled. What this means is that righteousness is something we receive before it's anything we achieve. Righteousness is a gift before it becomes a practice. It's promised to those who know they're empty, not to those who think they're full. John Kessler describes it so well. Righteousness comes only one way. You can obtain it by, you can't obtain it by labor. Even if you wanted to work for it, you wouldn't be able to expend enough effort. So you can't work for it. You can't purchase righteousness. Even if you wanted to buy it, you wouldn't be able to offer enough money. The only way to obtain righteousness is to receive it. That's why at the heart of the gospel, the good news that, that, that is on every story of the Bible is a person, a righteousness that comes down from heaven as a gift in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read Passages like this one in 1 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who knew no sin, so God made the righteous one, to become sin for us. So our sins were, were placed on him and he bore their penalty in order that he may redeem us and free us from the pollution and the power and the punishment that our sins deserve. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, united to him. And, and Peter makes it clear this was very costly for Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus has become for us righteousness from God. And when we are united by faith to Jesus, God clothes us in the righteousness of his Son, and he views us as just as righteous as Jesus himself is. That's a free gift. That comes through trusting in Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Now that we've received righteousness as a gift, we're ready to start experiencing righteousness as a lifestyle. And it starts on the inside of us and works its way out. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees missed. It's what we can easily miss too. It's easy to think of righteousness as something we can work from the outside in. If we worship at the right church and at least pretend to enjoy it, 
if we give tithes and offerings and perform rituals and hang out with the right people and read the Bible and pray and avoid certain really bad behaviors, then we think we're being righteous. But someone put it like this, righteousness is not a mold we can pour ourselves into. Righteousness is something that comes from outside us that must be poured into us. Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God. And as we come to God, he fills us with his spirit and conforms us to the character of Jesus himself. Now, this is why the people who were most attracted to Jesus were the ones who were the most messed up. Prostitutes, thieves, outcasts. They knew they couldn't fix themselves. They knew they couldn't measure up. They knew that if they were going to be righteous, they needed to come to Jesus empty and and let him fill them. Here's what happens when you come to Jesus empty to be filled. You want to keep coming again and again and again because righteousness, righteousness is not a standard we can reach. Righteousness is a person we need to meet and encounter and get to know and learn to love and most importantly to be loved by the righteous one until slowly but surely we become like him because his influence and his presence in our lives is totally transforming us. He compels us to change, to do something, but it's not through our own power and efforts. It's through the power of Christ working within us. You know what it's like when you've had the perfect meal at a restaurant. And the next time you go back, you think, ah, I'm just going to order that again (laughs) because it was so good. And you keep going back, and you keep getting the same thing. I've got certain meals in mind right now. And, and then finally you go to the restaurant, and you think, well, I should try something different. And you try another item, and you're just disappointed because it's not what you love. It's not, it's not what fills you. And so you vow, whenever I go to this restaurant, I'm just going to keep coming back for the same thing. It's like that for a person who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That hunger and thirst keeps drawing us back to a person, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Nothing else will satisfy but him. Everything else starts to taste like junk food. Once you've tasted and seen his goodness and his righteousness, you will be spoiled for anything less, and you'll keep longing for more and more. I love the way Bernard of Clairvaux expressed this 900 years ago in his wonderful hymn, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. In verse 3 of that hymn, he says, We taste of thee, thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. That's how 
this hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied. It's by coming to Jesus again and again and again and again and being conformed ever more to his character and likeness. And the more we are filled with Jesus, the more we hunger and thirst for Jesus. A.W. Tozer got this well when he said this, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. This is what it looks like to hunger and thirst for righteousness in this life. It's a continual coming to Jesus until finally one day we will see him face to face. And we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And then and only then will we experience such complete satisfaction that Revelation 7 verses 16 and 17 can say, they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And we hear that and we just say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But until he does, let us keep coming to him over and over, coming empty to be filled. And that's what communion is designed to do. It's designed to draw us to come to Jesus empty to be filled. So we're going to express our longing and our desire for him now as we sing of hungering and thirsting for Jesus. And if you don't know that hunger and thirst today, but it's starting to be kind of stirred up in you. And you're wanting to experience what that is to hunger and thirst for Jesus. If there's any stirring in your heart, I can tell you that's because he's doing the stirring. He's wanting you to experience more of him. As we sing about hungering and thirsting for Jesus, this would be a good time to say, Lord Jesus, you're the bread of life. And I'm always going to be starving until I learn to feed on you. You're the living water, and my soul thirsts for you. Tell him, tell him you're longing for him as we sing, and then we're going to come and taste and see his goodness in the bread and in the cup.